there are rules that you should know what to do and where to go when you hear the sirens blow stop look and listen a relic from World War II and the Cold War has been rescued from where it stood high above a Seattle street for nearly 80 years. And the rescuer is a local high school student. A resident historian, Felix Bennell, caught up with him and got a close look at a rare artifact which is now being restored. Now, I want to play an authentic recording here and give people a warning. This is coming from your radio or streaming device. There is not an air raid underway. Well, you hear that sound, and that's that's bad news, typically, especially during World War II. I'm going to turn yeah. that off. Yeah. I thought I turned it off. Okay, there it is. Anyway, um, so that sound is from a modern version of a siren that's still being made today, but the design goes back more than 80 years. Back in the days leading up to World War II, the city of Seattle Engineering Department, they got ready for an enemy attack by installing dozens of similar sirens all around the city. Many were made by Federal Electric Company of Chicago, Illinois, and that's a Model 2 if you're keeping score at home. For much of the war, they were tested every Wednesday at 12.15 p.m. Now, what does a Federal Electric Model 2 look like? This is 15-year-old Hawthorne Hills resident Nathan Vares. Probably about, say, like two and a half feet tall, maybe foot wide. It's got an outer shroud that covers the whole motor. motor stands on three legs. The outer shroud has, it's like a, it's a cylinder and it has three different like roof things coming off of it. Kind of looks like a big rusty <laughs> air freshener, sort of like a giant uh, air wick kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> so Nathan loves history and artifacts, especially vintage military stuff. A year or so ago, he offered to restore an old rooftop siren at Sand Point on the old Navy fire station at Magnuson Park, but that's part of the historic landmark district. So that was a dead end. But Nathan was not deterred. He remembered being out riding his bike. He'd noticed a solitary forgotten siren high on a utility pole near View Ridge Park in View Ridge Elementary School, not far from where he lives. He did some research. He learned that for an old siren for World War II to still be attached to a utility pole in 2023, more than 80 years after it was first installed, well, you know, that's pretty rare. All the ones got uh, put up in World War II, there's big lists of all that. And they took down probably around 95% of them uh, right after in 1946. So, Why do you think this one was still sitting there in Hawthorne Hills all these years later? I don't know. Um, <laughs> luck, probably. City <laughs> inertia. That's Nathan's dad, Alex, there at the end. He's a history buff, too. It kind of runs in the family. His parents escaped from Hungary during the revolution back in 1856. They've been following that stuff very closely ever since. Now, earlier this year, Nathan got permission from City Light to actually take possession of the orphan siren. A company called Cannon Constructors donated their crew's time and equipment, including at least two bucket trucks, to carefully remove the siren, put it in the back of Nathan's dad's pickup. From the photos Nathan shared, I can see how it would be easy to miss the old siren high up on the pole for all those decades. It was pretty rusty. And that's what's taking most of the restoration effort right now. What we've done so far is basically taken a wire brush and sandpaper, and we've had to get all the rust off of that. Uh, we're still in the process of doing it because you've got a bunch of like small cracks that you've got to basically use rust remover on. But we're going to sandblast it and then use um, primer, and then we're going to paint it. And I was in their garage yesterday. The pieces are spread out everywhere. The bolts that were holding it to the telephone pole. You, you visited their garage. Oh, of course. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, not some, I'm not some armchair historian, oh, know, Dave. I'm out there with the people. Um, the bolts that were holding it in place, they were so worn through. A good windstorm could have brought this, this artifact down to the ground and made it a, a pile of it's debris. A good and, thing and, they took care of it. It really is. Now... The next big step, as anyone would know, is getting the electric motor reconditioned, which yes. would likely cost about $1,500. Apparently, there's only one company in California that can do it. They specialize in this. We'll talk about more, more about that in a moment. 
Now, Nathan Vares is a discerning guy. Um, he really wants his siren to be in a museum, but he's, he's pretty smart. He knows that uh, most museums it would be sort of put in storage probably. He wants it to be on display permanently, not tucked away forever. If I'm restoring it, I really then don't want it to sit in a warehouse where other people can't see it because, you know, that'd be not great. So that's why I took into consideration when I was thinking about which museum to donate it to. Um, because if you're going to donate to a museum like a uh, museum of history and industry or the museum of flight, that would, it would be really good, but the chances are really high that it's going to sit in storage and no one will be able to see it and understand or anything like that. Yeah. I didn't figure that out until I was in my forties, Dave, that museums have all this stuff <laughs> in the back room. You don't get to yeah. see anyway. Now, Nathan chose the flying heritage and combat armor museum at Payne field. That museum's had a bit of a roller coaster ride lately. You might remember the flyable collection of flyable planes was sold by Paul Allen's estate. Right. It was going to be moved to Arkansas. If those plans have changed, it's going to stay there at Payne Field. Now, they're closed right now, but they told Nathan they'd love to have the siren to display permanently, especially because they have a Cold War exhibit coming up. Now, one key factor in all this, and who should get a lot of credit, is Seattle City Light. They own and maintain all the utility poles in Seattle, including this one the siren lived on. Now, they were supposed to take it down in 1946, but I'm not going to to criticize them for that. But they don't get requests like this very often, as you can imagine. For some reason, it all moved along very quickly. Uh, Jen Strang, spokesperson for City Light, says, uh, really, it's Nathan who should get all the credit. He is a very persistent young gentleman. And actually, I I will say, uh, when I was talking to the program managers who were involved in this, they were actually surprised when they initially met him because they thought they were talking to an adult. And uh, very well-spoken, very eloquent in his requests, in his emails. And so when they actually were uh, finally meeting him, they were very surprised. And you know, the rest of the family is kind of slow getting going. So Nathan had ridden his bicycle there. And so when the crew came up, they found this kid on a bike and they wondered where his dad was. Where's anyway, dad, yeah. um, now I mentioned Nathan wants to get the motor reconditioned so the siren will be operable. You know, it's actually so loud. It's unlikely to ever be fired up. But it would be deafening, right? If we had it in this room here, we'd all be, we'd lose our hearing permanently. So I asked him, you know, why go to the trouble of raising money and all this effort to ship the thing to California? You figure it's like, if you're going to donate to a museum, you might as well have it in the best shape as possible because it's going to be there for the rest of its life. And you know, if the chance of running it one last time happens to come along, <laughs> like, I'm not going to say no. That's so. what I'm hoping to. I, I really want to hear it. I want to hear yeah. it and be able to, you know, from a distance and with earplugs and everything. There's one other reason, and that is that the Flying Heritage Collection, they restore planes to flyable. Yeah. So in keeping with what they do, we can't give them something that doesn't work. I like that. That's a good excuse. I'll buy that. So there is a GoFundMe campaign to raise the $1,500 or so to send the thing to California and get it all fixed up. I'll we'll post a link to that at My Northwest and also some great photos of this big rusty giant air freshener thing that is, is <laughs> I mean, if you, if you know, if you see it and know that it's cool, you can't really explain it. You have to understand it. It's hard for me to explain how cool this thing was and what a role it played in World War II history, letting people know if we were going to come under air attack. Yeah. I, I don't if it's work, in working condition, repurpose it as part of the Lahar warning system. It could, yeah. These very similar sirens are still used for that sort of thing. So it's exactly. it's all history's out there. Felix Bunnell, all his features at mynorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Six forty six Seattle's morning news. Yesterday the Supreme Court heard arguments in a case that affects about forty three million Americans. Can the president wipe away hundreds of billions of dollars in student debt? Let's go to CBS News legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum, who joins us live now. This was not about the the merits of the idea, but whether the president had the authority, correct? Well, in some sense, it also deals with the merits because it is a separations of powers question, Dave. So the question goes directly to the heart of federalism, right? How much power does a president have? 
especially when it comes to matters that normally would be handled by Congress. Remember, you gave the numbers. You're talking about three quarters of a trillion dollars. Congress has power of the purse. Uh, the Constitution is clear, taxing, spending, and allocations. So you can see how the objection is to say, this is just not a matter for the executive branch. The numbers are just too large. And that's really what you got the tone from yesterday, from at least the conservative justices, is if to say, you know, these numbers are just massive and Congress is not involved. The president is saying, hey, there's a statute that I was relying on that Congress passed right after 9-11 which dealt with national emergencies, and the pandemic was a national emergency. So what's the problem? Yeah. One of the things that surprised me is that one of the cases involved a student who didn't think he got enough in loan relief. And so they were claiming standing, saying that, uh, hey, we should have had a chance to comment on this so that we would, I guess they, their incomes were too high to uh, qualify for loan relief. They actually wanted more money. Right. Well, also, remember, here's an interesting thing that the conservatives were interested in, too, right? This does not involve people that took out private loans. You went to a private bank and said, I want to go to college. I need a loan. This only dealt with federal loans. So you also heard the conservative justice think, say, "There's there's a fairness question. Why are we favoring just people who took federal loans? Why are we favoring people just went to college? Right. Mm -hmm. And so the question there became with this one student saying, well, yeah, so you didn't qualify for the additional ten thousand dollars because it wasn't a Pell Grant. And the other one didn't qualify at all because of both income and, as you said, it was a private loan. So then their question is, what are you what are you doing here in court? You're only here to mess it up for everyone else. Right. That was like a standing question was just to say, you can't benefit. You're disqualified from this program altogether. There's nothing we can do to give you the money because the program is very clear. It's federal money and you never took out any federal money. So the only reason you're here is just to gunk it up for 43 million other people. Thane Heather Bosch here. Some conservative states led by Republicans are arguing that this whole loan forgiveness uh, affects them. Do they have a right to make that that case? Well, that's interesting. The liberal justices, Heather, were all over that, right? Because they were saying, what are you doing in court here? (laughs) Everything was yesterday about who are you doing here, right? These are standing questions. Are you really the right party to bring this case? Did you get damaged by this case? Exactly. The Supreme Court loves to, they want to resolve cases as much as they can by uh, procedural issues, right? So we don't even get to the merits, right? You don't, you do belong in this courtroom. So what Dave and I were just talking about were the two students. There was a question of standing there with the question of states. It's, this is federal money. This is money that goes back to the federal government. We don't really know what, how this would affect you at all. We don't see how it, it may affect taxpayers, but it may not affect you. So then there was this interesting thing that of the six states, one said, well, well, wait, in Missouri, there's a nonprofit that deals with loans, right? And so the liberal justice said, so then where are they? <laughs> how come they're not here? Why are you here? And you're not even Missouri. You're another state. So it, that there was some humor, of course, in that as well, because there was a question of what are you doing here? And they're pointing their fingers at some small nonprofit that didn't bring the suit, lawsuit on their own. So are they ever going to get to the merits of this case? It seems like right now they're sort of stuck in the minutia about who has the right to complain about what. Yeah, good question, Heather. So if if they decide that the president overreached, right, the executive branch took on more than it was constitutionally permitted to do so, right? In that case, they just resolve it by saying, 
you know, we 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 favor the lawsuit that was intended to block it. And we 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 end up blocking this uh, proposal for for the uh, debt cancellation. That doesn't mean that the president can't try to find another avenue. He'll find something else if he wants to fulfill this campaign promise. But if we do get a result that says we're disqualifying, striking down this program, it'll be consistent with some of the cases from last year. Remember, was similar what they argued overreaches by the executive branch. Remember the case where there were the vaccine vaccine mandates for large corporations and the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. You, the executive branch can't make those decisions. And then there was... Uh, uh, a, a similar case with the moratorium on evictions for people who didn't pay their rent, right? And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. That's not, what does it have to do with the executive branch? So if they favor uh, the, those states that brought these lawsuits and these students, it'll be consistent with this line of cases of saying the executive branch is overextending its authority. Yeah, there was this envy dimension where people saying, well, since I didn't get the uh the the program it's illegitimate but i think one of the pushback on that was that congress also gave a lot of pandemic gifts to businesses that didn't go to all businesses but to some businesses so if you know you you sue over every program like that people be uh, at the supreme court uh claiming foul every day yeah and also remember the the government the executive branch the president was relying on the heroes act from 2003 and so what's that? Well, the, the reason it was called the HEROES Act was that it was there to make sure that if you went off to fight the war on terror, we're not going to let you default on your student loan. Mm-hmm. Right. Very specific. Right. But that's what it meant. Heroes. And so the question is, are people who go to college heroes? Yeah. Right. Is that the same? <laughs> is that really the same thing? They're saying, well, it also said national emergency. But you can see that the conservative justice says, oh, give me a break. <laughs> yeah, it says national emergency, but it also said for military, it was very clear in their minds why we did this. And so we don't think the pandemic and college loans qualifies in the same way. So you're right. It had a lot to do with a lot of the money that went out for the pandemic and where a lot, lots of other people didn't end up getting it. And so that may not be a reason to, to you know, disqualify this. CBS News legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. Thane, thank you. Anytime. Let's talk about school expulsions and street racing, which are both on the legislative agenda. Here's Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich, who joins us live. So on the subject of uh, expulsions and inclusive learning, yeah, we're going to tie those two together. It's a couple school items right off the bat here. Um, good morning, Dave. It's day 52. Tomorrow is the halfway mark of the state legislative session. Uh, but and we'll talk tomorrow about, you know, what's been accomplished until then. So what? Yes, inclusive learning. So this passed the Senate yesterday on a party line vote, twenty nine nineteen. Just one person absent. That's basically all Democrats voting for it, all Republicans voting against it, and it requires school districts to adopt uh, an age report, age report appropriate courses that include the histories and contributions and perspectives of historically marginalized and underrepresented groups. And it specifically mentions LGBTQ community, and all this has to be done by December 1st, of 2024. Now, Democratic Senator Jamie Peterson gave an, an emotional endorsement of this bill. I can tell you, Mr. President, that as a kid growing up, I felt very alone 
there were a lot of times that I wondered if I was the only gay person who existed. And it would have made a huge difference to me to have had some history, to have understood that there was a place beyond Puyallup, (laughs) no offense, where I could find happiness and imagine a future. Obviously, uh, Senator Peterson has been very open about his uh, sexual orientation, and he obviously led the Democrats in, into this uh, this idea of in, having this inclusive learning aspect put on the school districts here. Now, inclusive means, and this is why I found what was interesting, inclusive means materials that create and sustain a sense of respect, belonging, safety, and attention to individual needs and background, which is a, a different kind of description than what you would think about course material uh, uh, that is normally taught to students. Now, Republican Phil Fortunato underscore the objection that a lot of Republican senators had. We are going to be voting on a bill on an unseen curriculum. We have absolutely no idea what this curriculum is about, but we are going to force local school districts to participate. So it doesn't specify how exactly you introduce uh, sexual orientation. Uh, I guess you have to would find out have to find out the sexual orientation of all historical figures that are taught in the schools. Is that what this is about? Well, they're trying to focus on and they, even though they say it on a broad sense, it's underrepresented communities. It's really about the LGBTQ community that they're pushing here, and it's about what their contributions is. I think part of that would be part of what does LGBTQ mean to students, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't go into. And, you know, it's going to talk about marriage and what that means, but it doesn't have. There's no course cur- curriculum right now, so that's what the argument is. Is we're going to have to have this, and the off the uh, superintendent of public instruction is going to have to mandate school districts and have a state uh, agreed upon curriculum, and then that's going to be disseminated to all the school districts. So does it mean that they're, I mean, as, as far as I can remember, I knew that, you know, I knew which presidents were married and that kind of thing, but sexual orientation as a separate subject was never discussed, for example, in the context of American history. So is it your sense that that's what would have to happen under this? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Correct. And and just about and that's why I read the what the inclusion meant. And because usually it's you know facts and figures of you know reading, writing, and arithmetic. They're kind of straightforward. But this says this is these materials that create us and sustain a sense of respect, belonging, and safety. So that's not quite what you would hear in a course curriculum. Yeah. All right. On the subject of expulsions. Yes. Now, this was uh, very. Interesting, because this is going to require, it's just part of a bigger bill about bullying. It requires schools to distribute policies and complaint procedures related to harassment, intimidation, bullying, and discrimination in public schools. But part of that is this term change. It changes the term emergency expulsion to emergency removal throughout the entire school code for the entire state and permit students to request that change be made on their permanent record. You know, students uh, going back to 2019, if you had an emergency expulsion, you can ask that the words be changed to emergency removal. Now, Democratic Representative Tana Tana Sen, the bill sponsor, says expulsion is just an improper label. We are right-sizing a label so that kids are not stigmatized or have anxiety or long-lasting negative consequences when really potentially they did nothing wrong. 
And you think, well, what does a big, you know, what does a change of a word really mean? Well, she explains why changing the language from expulsion to removal is a big deal. While that might seem a minor change, it really can be life-changing. And it creates confusion among students and parents and the entire community. What was going on? This child was emergency expelled. But really, in essence, that was just a moment to take a pause, removing a child from a dangerous situation while things were being evaluated. Now, this passed along party line votes with actually two Republicans going to join the Democrats who are in favor of this. And uh, Republican Ruth Schuyler says, don't soften the language if a student truly did something that's worthy of expelling them from school. I'm not convinced that a name change is going to have much of an impact. There are oftentimes consequences for certain actions. Expel might sound harsh, but it may be an accurate reflection of what's happening. But you would still be able to remove students for misbehavior, right? Correct. Just correct. call it and, something different. Right. And, you you know, suspension is a temporary removal. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Democrats are saying that uh, emergency removal can be temporary as well. It's just that word uh, expulsion, which they found prejudicial. So, But as we know, uh, that's, when you change a word like this publicly, it acquires the definition of the word it replaced over time. Right. You're, you're exactly right. Yeah. So, again, this is just past the uh, the House. Uh, but and so it's got to move on to the Senate here for. But it's it's basically it, it did get a party line vote. And so I'm bringing up votes that are not um, pretty yeah. much uh, universal or unanimous. Can we this quickly cover have... street racing? Because that's a big deal, too. Here, Yeah, yeah. I'll move. On. OK. Yeah. But that's OK. Here's an example of one that passed the Senate unanimously, 46 to one and expands the crime of racing to include off-street facility and drifting basically on private property and allow those and it allows those aiding and abetting racing to be charged as accomplices now the penalty is five thousand dollars and up to a year in jail but here's where it's a little bit different the first offense the car is impounded for 72 hours and the second conviction that car is forfeited and uh-huh. that got the, the that got a lot of people supporting this bill and here's how the bill's prime sponsor john lovick described the scope of the issue right street now. racing is a major problem in our state. And he says drifting in intersections is really the target of this law. And what's happening is that these youngsters, a lot of people are just taking over intersections and just absolutely just creating terror in communities. And, he, and uh, I know we're running out of time, but this was brought out by the city of Kent, where they have a lot of big parking lots and wide streets. And one senator rep- who represents Kent saw it happen in front of her. I witnessed firsthand at intersections, the spinning cars and no one can move. Yeah. So that's bad. It sounds like they're cracking down. Yeah. Well, you know, and I have to explain, I went in the newsroom and I said, what is people didn't know what drifting is. And, uh, you know, drifting is a kind of a form of what we, I grew up with, which was doing donuts in a parking lot. <laughs> so you're kind of spinning around and uh, letting the car in big wide circles. And the, but what's when it's happening in the middle of intersections, that's when people can really get hurt. Find a big open field somewhere. does make it a designated drifting location and just get them off the streets. Of course, that's no fun then, right? That's correct. Yeah, it's right. uh, all about doing it at 2 in the morning, yeah, That's I think. right. Matt Markovich on the legislature for us. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Baird. Focused on your financial needs since 1919.
The Foo Fighters' Dave Grohl spent over 24 hours volunteering at a Los Angeles shelter recently to prepare barbecue for hundreds of homeless people. Grohl's visit comes as Hope the Mission CEO Ken Kraft and President and CFO Rowan Van Sleeve are running 350 miles across the desert from the Las Vegas Strip back to Los Angeles to raise money for the mission's latest campaign. Van Sleeve posted a video Grohl sent to support the All In for Housing campaign. What's up, you guys? 15 miles today. Congratulations. Congratulations. Go get them. Tomorrow's another beautiful day. Keep it up. Get out here all night cooking. And uh, you got to come back soon. Because we're all in. We're all in, man. You're all in. We're all in. Keep going. Grohl and his fellow barbecuers took turns smoking the meat overnight, even as a winter storm moved through Southern California, dumping hail and rain on the shelter that night. The Foo Fighters frontman had brisket, pork butt, ribs, and more delivered to Hope the Mission's Trebek Center in Northridge, California. Grohl has written about how he found his love of barbecuing after breaking his leg on tour in a 2019 essay for Bon Appetit, writing, The process of making music is a lot like cooking for a crowd. You create a recipe as you would a song. You prepare a meal as you would record it in a studio and you serve it as you would perform it live. When people come back for seconds, well, he says, that's your encore. 7.47 and now from the G and Ursula show, which starts at 9 o'clock here on Cairo News Radio. Here is G. Scott. So it was last Friday that The Athletic carried that story about the circumstances under which Russell Wilson departed the Seahawks, which involved him trying to get Pete Carroll and John Schneider fired. And there was there was no confirmation of it until now. So uh, what do we know? What's changed? Um, well, confirmation. That's what's changed. I always say this all the time. The truth never expires. Right. Mm-hmm. John Snyder and Pete Carroll had the opportunity during that time, because when the report came out on Friday, Russell Wilson took to social media, basically denying it. Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't necessarily deny it. He just said, hey, all I want, I wanted to win championships. Right. But we knew that once the media had access to Pete Carroll and John Schneider, which would be at the Combine, which is where they are right now. We knew then that if it wasn't true that there was an opportunity for Pete and John to say, hey, just so you guys know, that wasn't true. Instead, one of the first comments out of John Schneider's mouth was, water under the bridge. When someone says water under the bridge, that's one of those, you know what, I'm just going to choose to uh, go high when you go low. That is one of those moments. That's one of those bye-bye moments, like eh, nice try moments. This is really bad for Russell Wilson. I've been saying it before, and I'll say it again. When he's done playing, who's going to be his fan base? Hmm. Right. Who's going to still like embrace him? I hope it's Seattle. Mm-hmm. I just don't know that it is. You think he's burning too many bridges at this point? It just stuff I, keeps coming up. I mean, I'll ask this question back to you because you talked about burning bridges. When is the last time that a conf- confirmed 
report, basically, has come out about a quarterback going to ownership trying to get the head coach fired. Do I believe it's happened before? Yes, I do. I believe that there have been quarterbacks in the past that have gone to ownership and said, hey, you know what? I need you to fire the head coach and I need you to fire the GM. I believe that. But do you think this is different? Well, it's different because we are seeing it in black and white. It's never been reported before. You know what I mean? Like, you can't, I can't recall a time where, like, I can't say. Well, I can't either, but what, is this, what does this mean? Does this mean then that all that stuff that we were fed about this great, uh, uh, this great pair, the unbeatable Pete Carroll, Russell Wilson combination, that was all just made up? No, it wasn't made up because it happened. They they were really good together, mm-hmm. and that's the part. So then, about, what's the, then I'm curious what what what's the sequence of events? What what changed it? I think it, it, it changes in anything in any type of relationship or friendship or marriage or or anything. They just got to the point where you know what we're not getting along. But I think that part is normal, yeah. right? I think that the same thing can be said about any of the other players that maybe didn't get along with Pete Carroll before they left here. So are you saying maybe that Russell Wilson's getting picked on or, or, or singled out in this article? Because you indicated that this happens a lot, probably. People disagree. I'm not saying it happens a lot. I'm saying I'm not dumb enough to think that Russell is the only one. But I just find it ironic that Russell is the only one to have been reported on on this and it's actually a huge article and then there was no denying it by Pete Carroll and John Schneider so I all I'm saying is is that this for everything that good happened during the time of Russell Wilson and his 10 years with Seattle the sad part is is the only thing might that we might remember mm. are all of the things that's happened over the last year, right? Are we going to, and when we start thinking about the good times and Russell Wilson, the LOB, are we going to continue to put Russell in there? I hope so. I hope that the 10-year anniversary of that Super Bowl team is this season. Will Russell be celebrated along with them? I think that he should be, but unfortunately, what we have been talking about the last year it's really bad. Okay, so then it sounds like your problem is that that somebody outed this. And this is not really unusual in a relationship. The problem here is that in this particular circumstance, it's a shame that somebody actually revealed what went on behind the scenes. The truth is the truth. I'm not I'm not even I'm not upset about anybody revealing anything. I'm just I'm more I'm more saying it's unfortunate of what's happening the last year, right? And I think that there's a part of this that I think Russell Wilson could do a better job with this, too. Like, I'm not making Russell Wilson the victim here because I think a lot of this is brought on by him. A lot of this is brought on by the people in his life, in his corner. Hmm. Example, remember before he got traded before that? Remember it came out where I don't want to be traded, but if I were to be traded, Mm -hmm. these were the four teams I want to go to. That was a little ridiculous. So that was planted then. <laughs> that was his agent. Yeah. They came. That's not a good idea to do something like that. Hey, I don't want to break up with you, but if I did break up with you, I'd date your friend, <laughs> your cousin, <laughs> your sister. Yeah, this is ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. So that example is part of the reasons why I think he's in the predicament he's in today because I, not just Russell, but the people around him 
are not giving him the best advice. Not very smooth. Which one of them said, hey, go to ownership and try to get them fired? Yeah. Imagine imagine if I went to Salt Lake and yeah. tried to get my market manager fired. Yeah. That would not be good for your career. It, w- it wouldn't happen either. <laughs> Kathy's tough. You, right? D- Dave, was that, would that be a yeah. good idea? Yeah. No. That okay. would not be. Thank you. Yeah. Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien, along with Dave Ross and Chris Sullivan. We continue to dig into the topic of long COVID. For that, we've invited Dr. Celine Gounder on the show. She's a contributor on CBS News, also a senior fellow and editor-at-large for public health at the Kaiser Family Foundation and Kaiser Health News. Good morning, Dr. Gounder. It's great to be here. So first, what I want to do is address a a tweet thread that you had recently about uh, long COVID and heart attacks. That really interested me because we're hearing more about these instances. What do we know? Well, COVID can cause heart attacks a couple different ways. One, you get inflammation in the blood vessels, which means that you're more likely to also develop clots in your blood vessels. So when you get a clot in the blood vessels that feed the muscle of the heart, that's a heart attack. When you get a clot in the blood vessels that feed the brain, that's a stroke. And so we have certainly been seeing people getting heart attacks related to a COVID infection uh, early in the pandemic, and we're still seeing that now. Is this something that would happen while you're actively fighting the virus, or is it an after effect weeks or months down the road? It could be both because we see that people have a higher risk of blood clots for months after getting COVID. And so, again, because a heart attack is a condition where you develop a blood clot in the blood vessels feeding the heart, it does uh, a COVID infection does increase your risk of getting a heart attack. Wow. This to me, uh, you know, who does this affect? Because to me, it sounds like a ticking time bomb situation. I wouldn't want to walk around wondering, am I going to be a victim of this? Well, the people who are highest risk are the people who are highest risk for having a heart attack. So uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, those are the most common um, risk factors for having a heart attack. But what's unique here is that uh, particularly early in the pandemic, before people had much in the way of immunity to COVID, and we can talk more about why that matters, but before people really had much immunity to COVID, we saw a lot of heart attacks among younger people who would not normally have had heart attacks. And we think that's because having COVID, well, one, increases your risk of having those blood clots, and two, may have been accelerating the process of developing that kind of severe heart disease in people who might have ended up with a heart attack later in life or just ended up facing it earlier in life. Wow. And when you say a a lot of heart attacks among young people, how many are we talking? Oh, gosh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. I apologize. Um, But we saw a big increase in younger people having heart attacks early in the pandemic, which was out of proportion to the increase we saw in older people. So a bigger increase among younger people. Okay. Yes. Not something you normally expect to see in in younger people. Uh, So you talked about the immunity factor. Uh, Let's expand on that. As people developed immunity, whether that's from vaccination or an infection, we have seen some of these manifestations of COVID reduce or the risk go down. Um, So a lot of the risk for these kinds of complications were in the early days of the pandemic before people had much in the way of immunity. 
For example, in New York City, we were hit really hard by COVID in March going into April. And then in the hospitals come August, we saw a lot of people with heart failure. Why did they have heart failure? Because COVID may have caused inflammation of the heart muscle, what we call myocarditis, and because COVID may have caused heart attacks, some of them obvious, some of them subtle or silent in the spring. And then people were ending up in the hospital later in the summer with heart failure as a complication. Now, unfortunately, we still see misinformation when it comes to the COVID vaccines. And a big one is that the vaccines are causing heart attacks. But you just uh, wrote on uh, Twitter a study that was published, a medical study that vaccinations actually helped prevent this. That's right. So the idea being that if you have immunity, to COVID, you're going to have a much milder case of COVID. You're not going to have the inflammation. Um, Your risk of blood clots is going to be lower. And so your risk of getting a heart attack after vaccination from COVID is going to be lower. And I think one of the things that's been very confusing to people is, well, they hear myocarditis and myocarditis means inflammation of the heart. We do know that vaccines can very rarely, extremely rarely, cause uh, inflammation of the heart muscle. It's a very transient, mild form of that. COVID itself can also cause this. And having seen both forms, I can tell you COVID causing myocarditis is a much more severe condition uh, and can lead to heart failure, which is not the case with the vaccines. But I think because of this overlap of both COVID and the vaccines, being a risk factor for that. People say, well, that's the heart. So anything involving the heart must be related to COVID and vaccines. And and that's simply not the case here. The vaccines do not give you heart attacks. Right. And we saw it with the athlete who collapsed uh, too. And that was due to, you know, being hit right at the exact moment the electrical current was going through him. And, you know, people were so quick to say, was he vaccinated? Was he, you know, and that misinformation right. is still out there. It's got to be frustrating as a medical professional to, you know, th- almost three years on keep hearing these rumors. Yeah. Um, so you're referring the ca- to the case of Damar Hamlin, and right. that was not a heart attack per se. It was commotio cordis, which is when you get hit in the chest right at the moment that your heart is beating in a certain way, there's a certain electrical current, and so can cause that kind of cardiac arrest. But yeah, it, it is incredibly frustrating to be dealing with this kind of misinformation, people trying to misattribute certain medical conditions to vaccinations when they're not due to vaccinations. And it really matters, one, because it impacts uh, people's trust in the safety of vaccines. But secondly, because if you don't make the right diagnosis and you don't track down, figure out the right, what the true cause of that condition was, you're not going to take the necessary steps to prevent it, to treat it. And so these things really do matter. Dr. Celine Gounder, she is the senior fellow and editor-at-large for public health at the Kaiser Family Foundation and Kaiser Health News, also a CBS News medical contributor. Uh, Dr. Gounder, appreciate your time and perspective. It's my pleasure. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.